Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, some of you might need some help finding that, Um, but uh, it's right in line with the ones we've already been looking at, the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah should be next. Hopefully that's in your Bible, it's in my Bible, right? Uh, You should find it there. But as you're turning there, let me tell you about the most infamous family feud in American history which undoubtedly is the Hatfields and McCoys. We've all heard of that, uh, that feud and the story of these two warring Appalachian families. It's, it's really part of a, our country's folklore. Uh, and uh, whenever their names are brought up uh, in our day, it's almost uh, as a joke. But between the years of 1880 and 1890, their bitter rivalry was, was deadly serious. There was no joking around. When it came to the Hatfields and McCoys, and no one's really been able to decisively trace the origin of this dispute. Some say it erupted over remaining hostilities from the Civil War. Others say it started with a stolen hawk. Um, nobody really knows. But whatever the initial cause, the conflict between these, these families who lived on the opposite sides of a, of a stream, um, one on the Kentucky side, one on the West Virginia side, right on the border there, uh, it, it quickly spiraled out of control. And in 1882, Ellison Hatfield was shot and killed in a brawl by some of the McCoys, leading the Hatfields um, to kidnap and execute three McCoy brothers. And the families uh, repeatedly went back and forth, um, exacting revenge on one another for uh, over the years and, and uh, beating each other up and burning one another's uh, houses and to the point that the feud ended up making national news and uh, it even made its way to the Supreme Court. And, and in all, about a dozen people died as a result of that feud. And by the, 19, or by the 1890s, thankfully, the dispute had died down and both families eventually put aside their differences and they now see their shared family history as uh, really something uh, to joke about and uh, with a sense of humor. In fact, back in 1979, some of you may remember this, that both of the clans made a week-long appearance on The Family Feud. Um, And that was kind of a big joke. And uh, both sides came out with their guns, with blanks, and they shot each other before they came down on the stage and and played The Family Feud. Um, By the way, if you're interested, the McCoys beat the Hatfields three games out of five. You can watch it on YouTube. It's kind of funny. Um, well, the 800-year-old, the or I should say the 800-year family feud that we're going to learn about tonight um, in our study of Obadiah makes the Hatfields and McCoys look like a family reunion, okay? Um, and so we, we are going to uh, observe this, this feud that, that lasted not just 10 years, but 800 years. And, uh, and just to begin our study of the book of Idea, uh, Obadiah, why don't we play the family feud just for a second, okay? You ready? Got your hand up there. Put your hand behind your back, okay? I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? This is the question. You ready? Sins God hates most. Survey says, number one answer, ding, you got the number one answer, okay? Look look at the book of Proverbs for a second, uh, just to prove that you got the right answer. Proverbs chapter 6, 
verses 16 to 19. Solomon says very clearly here, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And he's about to give you a, a list of six or seven things that God hates that are an abomination to him. So here we go. The very first one is what? Haughty eyes, which means what? Pride. First thing is pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that divides wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Um, of course, the Proverbs have some classic statements about pride. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Uh, the verse that my mom drilled into me when I was little, felt like I heard this every day of my life. Verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. She'd always say, Kenny, pride goes before a fall. Uh, and uh, I, apparently I was a cocky little dude um, growing up and, and my mom had to continue to knock me back down <laughs> and remind me to be humble. Uh, how about Proverbs 18, verse 12? Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. And then Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And then, of course, you've got James chapter 4, verse 6, that says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It says that again in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So why is pride so repulsive to God? What is it about pride that invites him to go to war against a prideful person or a prideful nation? Well, I would say it's because pride dethrones God and exalts someone or something else in his place. And so that's why the Bible repeatedly says that he who exalts himself will be what? Humbled or brought low, but he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted and lifted up. And so survey says sins God hates the most. Number one answer, pride. Okay, you ready for the second question for the night? You ready? Here we go. Question, nations God hates most. Nations that God hates most. You're not so quick to draw on that one, right? Um, survey says, number one answer, eat them. Eat them. Isaiah chapter 34, listen to some of the things that the prophet said about Edom. This is Isaiah chapter 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all the springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, his wrath against all their enemies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter, so their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give their stench. Give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon who? Edom, and upon the people whom I've devoted to destruction. So here's God talking about how he's going to pour his wrath out upon the nations, and the very first nation that he mentions is who? Edom. 
Uh, again, in uh, Isaiah 63, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Obviously, God's talking about himself, right? But notice how he describes himself. It's pretty gruesome. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? Why does it look like you just stepped out of the wine press? You got blood all over you. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold, so my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath uphold me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And again, he's talking about his wrath against Edom. Um, Jeremiah got into the action. Uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 49, and uh, really ch- uh, verses 7 through 22, but let me just read verse 17. This is Jeremiah 49:17. Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its sounds like the overflow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord. No one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. So here he's comparing Edom to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Ezekiel chapter 25, Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 14. If you can't keep up, that's okay. Just maybe write these down. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 12, thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has, has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it, and I will lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan. They will fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. And then again, the minor prophets, we've already seen uh, a few references in both Joel and Amos to, to Edom. Joel 3.19, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. And then Amos chapter 1 We saw this just last week, Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire from Teman and will consume the citadels of Bozrah, which were just cities in the land of Edom. I found it interesting that that, um, we know that God pronounces judgment on a lot of nations in the Old Testament, but God's judgment and and vengeance against Edom is mentioned in more Old Testament books than any other foreign nation. What, What should that tell us? That what is the nation that God hates most, right, according to how many times it's mentioned by how many different prophets, it's the nation of Edom. In fact, some of the most serious warnings against Edom were given by this obscure prophet by the name of Obadiah. In fact, most Bible scholars consider Obadiah 
um, to be the earliest of all the prophets, not just the minor prophets, but all the prophets. Uh, and if you've got that little sheet from the back, right, you remember that, that uh, I gave you a chronological order. We're going in the canonical order, but the, 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 uh, the, the chronological order is that Joel came first, I mean, excuse me, Obadiah came first maybe around 840 B.C. And so what they suggest is that because the other prophets often have similar language, almost identical language as Obadiah, um, when it comes to talking about the judgment, God's judgment on Edom, that they think that maybe some of the other prophets borrowed from Obadiah's prophecy. Now, interesting, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. There you're having, you're looking at it, right? It probably fits on one page or two pages in your Bible, right? Um, it doesn't even have any chapters. It just has, what, verses. Um, the, only, the only books that are smaller than Obadiah in the Bible would be what? How about 2nd and 3rd John? 2nd and 3rd John are the only books that are smaller uh, or shorter. And if the book of Obadiah was assessed just by its size alone, it would be the most minor, minor prophet, Right? Um, but don't let its size fool you because it's small, but it packs a powerful punch. And God communicated a great deal uh, of truth and revelation in a small amount of space. And so tonight we're going to look at this book of Obadiah, which, which is all about God's trustworthy vengeance. That's the title that I put on it, God's trustworthy vengeance. You already heard some of that language, that revenge language in some of those prophecies against Edom. Um, and, and it's basically that God's vengeance will be against those who arrogantly lift themselves up and push down God's people. Let me just give you a kind of a brief summary of the book and then we'll get into it. Obadiah directed his prophecy to the nation of Edom that bordered Judah on the southeast, so the, just south, if you're thinking about the nation of Israel, okay, and here's the, 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 the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, and you've got the Dead Sea, okay, here is, is the area that we would call Edom, okay, uh, down there south of the Dead Sea. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, and they refused to act as their brother's keeper towards Judah, but rather gloated when Jerusalem was invaded by enemy nations, and so consequently, they would be totally destroyed. That's what um, Obadiah is writing about here. While Israel would be delivered and someday restored to possess not only their land, but also the land of Edom. And so the bottom line is this, that God's people and plan will ultimately prevail. We can trust the fact that God will be faithful to avenge his enemies and vindicate us in his way and his time. And really the heart of this book is, is, is found in verses 10 through uh, 15. Um, because the violence, because of your violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you'll be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction, yet yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster, yes, you do not gloat over their calamity um, in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. And probably verse 15 is the key verse here. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, 
As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. In other words, what goes around comes around. And uh, the late great pastor and theologian J. Sidlow Baxter called the judgment of Edom poetic justice. You know that term, right? Poetic justice. Um, basically, um, they got what they had coming to them, right? They, they got what they deserved. Um, in fact, uh, they were exacting vengeance. They were trying to get revenge on the people of Israel. And so guess what they got? They got the vengeance of God. <laughs> so uh, basically how we judge others, we will be judged. That's the principle. Well, listen how Chuck Swindoll summarized these 21 verses. He said they remind us in a powerful way that God stands by his redeemed, that he will indeed deliver the eternal blessings he has promised, and that the wicked who persecute God's people, though successful and secure for a time, will be brought to ruin by the Lord of heaven. Obadiah is for anyone who needs a fresh reminder that no matter who is against us, God is for us and with us forever. So I just wanted to front load this message with a little bit of application, right, to draw you in and say, wow, that's what I need to hear uh, this morning or this, this evening. Uh, now, the outline uh, that um, kind of the flow of the book of Obadiah is very similar to all the other prophetic motifs. It's basically, it begins with condemnation of, of either Israel or the enemy nation and then consolation for Israel. And so you, you could really break this down into two sections. You've got uh, verses 1 through 18 would be the condemnation of Edom and then verses 19 to 21 are the consolation of Israel. So there's a contrast between what God's going to do to Edom and what God's going to do to Israel. But I, I'm going to prefer and follow a different outline. It's just a threefold outline. Verses 1 through 9 are, are describing God's overthrow of Edom. Uh, verses 10 through 14 is God's offense against Edom. And then verses 15 to 21 is God's outlook for Edom. And I would say Israel uh, as well is included in that. So basically, the first thing we see is what will happen. Secondly, why it will happen. And thirdly, when it will happen. Okay, so let's look first of all at God's overthrow of Edom, verses 1 through 9. What is going to happen here? Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Um, Obadiah doesn't say anything about his background or the time in which he ministered. All we know is that his name means one who worships or serves Yahweh. That was his name. And believe it or not, Obadiah was a common name in the Old Testament. Apparently it's... A lot of moms like that name. They're naming their babies Obadiah. Um, there's at least a dozen other people with, with this same name mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, the best we can discern regarding the date uh, is that this prophetic vision, he says the vision of Obadiah, uh, it happened around 845 or 840 B.C., making it the earliest of all the prophets. Uh, again, not just the minor prophets, but all the prophets, and, and the way... Um, uh, Bible scholars determine that date is, is, is it obviously happened um, based on verses 10 through 14 uh, during some attack that happened on Jerusalem uh, where the Edomites did not come to the aid of their brothers, but they applauded and even aided the enemy invaders. And so you just have to go back through the Old Testament and see that, that there were about seven different times when Jerusalem was attacked 
Um, the second of these attacks seems to best fit the description here in Obadiah. It was, occurred during the days of King Jehoram. Uh, you can read 2 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 21. But the point here is, because the Edomites did nothing to help their brothers, in fact, they actually assisted their enemies in defeating them, God would incite other nations to attack and destroy Edom. Notice he says, we have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us go against her for battle. And so God is calling the nations to go to war against Edom. And he was going to use the other nations to get revenge, if you will, or take out his vengeance upon, upon Edom. Now again, um, Edom was that region southeast of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. They were bordering nations there uh, between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea. If you've ever been out that way, there's not much to look at, okay? It's one of the most remote parts on planet Earth. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. And we're going to find out what that reason is um, as we go along here. But the question we should ask ourselves is, okay, who are these guys, these Edomites, and how did they end up on the top of God's most hated list? I mean, what in the world did they do to earn the title of God's least favored nation? Why was God out to get them? I mean, what did they do that was so bad that aroused God's wrath? I mean, God is out to get these guys. And, and so Obadiah provides us some hints here as to who these Edomites were. Notice in verse 6, he says, Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasure searched out. Verse 8 Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Verse 9, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may cut off from the mountain of Esau my slaughter. Verse 18, then the house of Jacob will be a fire, fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be a stubble. Verse 19, then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. And then verse 21, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. So you're saying, well, wait a minute, time out. I thought we were talking about Edom. Who's Esau? The same thing, right? Edom and Esau are synonymous terms. And so you ask yourself, well, well then who's Esau? Esau was the brother of Jacob. Verse 10, notice, because of violence to your brother Jacob. Now, in order to understand this dynamic here and what's going on here in Obadiah, there's, a, there's obviously there's, there's this, this bitter animosity between Edom and Israel. Well, well, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis because the feud between these two nations started with a feud between two brothers in their mother's womb. Talk about the family feud to end all family feuds, right? Um, the Hatfields and McCoys got nothing on, on, on Jacob and Esau. Look at Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Genesis 25, verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of the wife because she was barren, his wife, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I, 
why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Didn't say, hey, you're having twins. She said, you're having two nations. Some of you ever had twins. You thought that was a big deal, right? Well, they had two nations. Rebecca had two nations wrestling around in her womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And then he says, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to him. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. I don't know if that means he was a mama's boy, but that's what... Some might conclude, right? Now Isaac loved Esau because he had taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means what? Red. (laughs) He wanted the red stuff. Uh, He came out red um, and he wanted the red stuff. And so his name is Edom, red. But Jacob said, first tell me your birthright. Esau, behold, I'm about to die, so what, have, what use then is the, the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And not only did he despise his birthright, he despised his brother for taking his birthright. Chapter 27, you remember this um, story where... Um, Isaac wanted to bless Esau, his oldest son, and pass on the Abrahamic blessing, right, to the firstborn. Um, and, and so uh, Rebecca knew that that was going to happen, and she wanted to have Jacob receive that blessing. And so she got, um, she came up with this plan to deceive her husband, and so she had Jacob dress up, right, and that, that, that put the skin on his arms, the, the fur, and come in there and, 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 and trick his dad to make him think it was actually Esau, and it, and, uh, and so man, he says, you kind of, you, you don't sound like Esau, but you smell like Esau and you feel like Esau. And so let me bless you. And well, come to find out, he blessed Jacob instead of Esau. And uh, we know that when uh, Esau got back and found out what the deceiver, his little deceiving brother had done, right? Not only had stolen his birth, right now he stole his blessing. And in, in, in uh, chapter 27, verse 41, This is what it says. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so he said, I've had enough of this guy. I mean, he's he's a dead man. But I'll wait for my dad to die, you know, our dad to die, and then I'll kill him. Well, Rebecca found this out. She said, Jacob, you got to get out of here or your brother's going to kill you. And so he took off, right, for what, maybe 14 years, seven years he had to work for his two wives there, right? So maybe 14, 15 years, right? He, he was away um, from his brother until they were reunited in chapter 32. Remember, Jacob was coming back and he was afraid of what Esau, how Esau might respond. And, uh, and so he sends forth, you know, all these uh, animals and, 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 and family members in front, you know, as gifts and then uh, while he was waiting, he wrestled with the Lord. Remember that? 
In, in chapter 32, in verse 27, it says, So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men have prevailed. So now you've got Edom, right? And you've got Israel from Jacob and Esau. Uh, chapter 36, verse 1, Now these are the records of the generations of Esau. And it goes down through listing uh, some of the generations. But notice verse 6. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob, for their property has become too great, had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. And so here these two feuding brothers resulted in two feuding nations. And even though the brothers reconciled, they didn't end up killing each other, right? Uh, There was still bad blood between the nations, between their descendants. And so the Edomites became ruthless enemies of Israel and and resented them as God's chosen people, right? Remember in Romans chapter 9, what did it say? Uh, God said, uh, 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 Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, right? And so there was this, this are you kidding me? Uh, I'm, I'm the hated child, right? And, and he's the chosen one, right? So there was this uh, animosity. And so they were repeatedly trying to prevent uh, the nation of Israel from prospering and from, uh, from entering the promised land to begin with, let alone to keep the promised land. Um, and, and so you remember that uh, this animosity came out when Israel was uh, delivered from uh, from uh, the slavery to Egypt, and they were going to the Promised Land. And Moses and the Israelites got to the edge of Edom, and they asked for permission to to go through to pass through uh, the land of uh, of Edom to get to the Promised Land. And the king of Edom said, "What? No. Over my dead body? You ain't coming through here." And in fact, if any of you even thinks of stepping on this territory, we're going to kill you. That's in Numbers chapter twenty. Well, after that, once they made it to the promised land, both Saul and David led uh, attacks against Edom. Uh, Their bitter bitter rivalry continued to the divided kingdom, uh, and Edom briefly received some independence during the days of the King Jehoram, 2 Kings 8, Um, and that was, I think, when this this, um, was was talking about this particular uh, uh, prophecy in Obadiah. Uh, In the 5th century uh, B.C., uh, the Edomites were forced by a group called the uh, Nabataeans to leave their territory, and they moved to the area of southern Palestine. They became known as Idumeans. You ever heard of that expression, Idumeans? You probably have because there was a very famous Idumean named Herod the Great, and uh, he became king of Judea in 37 BC. And and again, just the, to see how this family feud, if you will. This enmity between Esau and Jacob came to a head when Herod was outwitted by the wise men and he had all the boys in Bethlehem uh, under two years old massacred in an attempt to murder baby Jesus who was from the line of Jacob, right? Interesting how that all kind of came to a head. And just before his death, Jesus confronted another Herod, another Idumean, right? Uh, Called him what? A fox, 
which again typified this, this unrelenting animosity of the Edomites or the Edomians against God's plan. Uh, again, it was all satanic, right? There was satanic stuff going on behind all this. Um, this any, any nation that came against the nation of Israel was satanic, was satanically inspired. Satan was trying to do everything he could to uh, destroy or thwart God's plan and, and destroy God's people. Now, back in Obadiah, if you can find it again, I lost it, I gotta go find it again. Obadiah, notice what it says in verse two. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. What was their number one problem? They were prideful. They were arrogant. And, and, and really, they, they were just, they were proud, they were presumptuous. And, and what were they proud about? They were proud about the fact that they, they had these mountain strongholds, uh, they, they were strong militarily, they, they were supposedly wise, um, they had all these allies. Edom was situated at the crossroads of the great trade routes coming from the east and the west, and so they were able to glean so much wisdom from all those travelers, and they had lots of alloy, allies. But I think more importantly, uh, this, this language of the clefts of the rock, the loftiness of your dwelling place, you, you build high like the eagles, you, you set your nest among the stars. I think that's a reference to the natural fortification uh, of, that they had in the canyons and the cliffs uh, in, in the area of Edom. Probably the most famous city uh, that still exists today, which really doesn't exist, it's more of a, a tourist site, but it's the city of Petra. Anybody ever been to Petra? Uh, that's a dream. I want to go to Petra and see that. Uh, you've seen it on TV or in the movies. You saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's where he went, right? Rode the horse into that thing, and there was this, this, this city uh, carved into the side of the red stone. That was Petra. And uh, I went in there and got the chalice, right? You know the story. Um, but uh, so, so that was not, Petra was not uh, built by the Edomites. It was built by the Nebi- uh, Nabataeans who came after them, but, but it's an example of, of how impregnable uh, that area was um, to attack. Um, the, the only way in and out of that particular city, Petra, is, is through this narrow canyon about a mile long, and the walls are like 200, 300 foot high. So they say, experts say that, that, uh, that, that if it was such a strategic position that just a dozen guys could stop a, a, an entire army coming in. Um, that's how strategic it was. And so they were, they were overconfident um, that they would ever be destroyed. I mean, they weren't afraid of anyone or anything, not even God. And I read this, I thought it was very interesting that uh, this is what one commentator said, that their arrogant self-sufficiency has been so deep, was so deep and so ingrained in their thinking that these Edomites Many scholars think we're almost unique. You say, how are they unique? You can go anywhere in the world and you'll find that people have gods of some kind to whom they swear allegiance and upon whom they claim dependence. But scholars say that for the Edomites, they find no record or statement of any kind of dependence at all. The Edomites had no allegiance to a god. 
This has led scholars to believe that this unusual people were so self-sufficient, so arrogant, so self-satisfied that they wouldn't even call upon the name of any kind of God at all. They believed they had all the answers themselves. That's interesting, right? To find a society where there's no evidence of any kind of God whatsoever. Maybe they were the, old, they, they were the original atheistic, right, society, um, that they didn't need God. And yet none of the things that they were trusting in would be able to save them when God took vengeance on them. Someone said this, that the Edomites had not calculated on Israel's God. There was no place inaccessible to him, no strength or wisdom greater than his, and no one more zealous to avenge his people than he. In other words, God will find you. <laughs> there is no place to hide, right? Uh, look at verse 5. If thieves come, came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined, would they not steal only until they had enough? If grapes gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. In other words, he's just saying, listen, even thieves, when they come and, and, and break into your house, right, they don't take everything, they just take what they want. They leave the rest, right? Same thing when harvesters come into the grape field. They don't get every single grape, right? They leave some. But not you, Ob- uh, Obadiah says, Edom, you are going to be completely ransacked. I mean, everything is going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be gone. Verse 7, all the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that every one may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence, uh, we'll just stop there at verse 9. So what is he saying? Basically, all your allies would betray you and they'll lay traps for you. In fact, all your friends will become your enemies. And, and no one will come to your aid when you're attacked. Does that sound familiar? They didn't come to Jerusalem's aid, right? Um, so everyone and everything that they prided themselves in would be wiped out completely. And listen, that's what God does to arrogant, smug, self-sufficient, self-confident people. And so, so Edom was cocky. That's bottom line, if you want to put it... Real simple. They were really cocky. And, and, and yet that wasn't what really riled God up the most against them. It wasn't their cockiness so much as it was their cruelty to his chosen people, Israel. And the coming judgment on Edom was based not just on their pride, but, but what it offended them, the, God the most was that they, they failed to be, be their brother's keeper. Remember the, the original family feud? What was that? Cain and Abel, right? And, uh, and what did Cain say when God said, hey, where's, where's Abel? And he goes, what, what, what am I, my brother's keeper? And, and the answer was a resounding yes. You were supposed to be your brother's keeper, Cain. And you ended up killing him, right? And so that was what really riled up God the most. And so we, we, we see that, first of all, that um, the, the Edomites here... Um, they're, they're, um, what did we say our first point was? Did you write it down? I don't even got it. Yeah, their overflow 
Their overflow, their overthrow, <laughs> their overthrow. But now let's look at, so God's overthrow of Edom. Now look at God's offense against Edom. Why, why will this happen? We saw what's going to happen, but why is this going to happen? Again, verse 10, because of the violence to your brother Jacob. You'll be covered with shame. You'll be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day the strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate, cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. You do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not prison their survivors in the day of their distress. So what was going on? Here was the Edomites rejoicing when Jerusalem was being attacked. And not only were they looking on with delight and going, yeah, you go, guys, get them, right? They were also looting the city themselves, running in and out, getting some stuff that they wanted. And they were even capturing the Jews who managed to escape and they would turn them back over to the enemies. Hey, you missed one. I caught one. Here's some other ones. They were, getting, they were getting away. We got them for you, is what they were doing. And in so doing, they, they were, again, they were trying to get revenge. This was a way for them to get revenge on their, their little brother, right? The deceiver, Jacob and his descendants. This was their way to get revenge. And in so doing, they invited God to take revenge on them. And so they basically were kicking Israel when, when she was down, and which, is, which is always a wrong move, right? You don't mess with God's people. Um, whenever I hear about some rocket being launched or some bomb being dropped or anything to do with Israel, I'm like, you are going to get in trouble. I'm just letting you know. I don't care who you are and what nation is launching stuff into Israel. You are going to get in trouble. Um, and it's not because Israel has such a great military, right? It's because God's on their side, okay? Um, And basically, when you fight against Israel, you're fighting against God. And that's what what he said. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham that he would bless those who blessed them, right? And he would curse those who cursed them. And so listen, when you mess with God's people, you're messing messing with God himself. and, And ultimately, I think every nation on this planet will ultimately be judged on the basis of their attitude toward God's, towards God's chosen people, Israel. And I'll just go on record saying this. I think one of the reasons why God has blessed the United States of America is because up until this point, we have tried to be a friend to Israel. I don't know how that's going to go in the future. seems like that, that friendship is, is waning, unfortunately, from our end, on our side. Um, I think we've got some people in leadership these days that don't get this biblical principle, Right? Um, and I think past presidents have realized that, that we have an, a, a responsibility uh, to, to uh, you know, stand up with Israel and stand for Israel. Interesting, I read this. I thought this was really helpful. For Edom, there was no pleas to return, no words of consolation or hope. Edom's fate is sealed. There were no conditions for possible deliverance. God will bring total destruction upon Edom and there will be no remnant. In other words, most of the prophets that we have studied already and will study in the future, there was always, hey, if you repent, none of this will happen. There was always an opportunity to, to get right and there was always hope 
for that who's ever being prophesied against. But guess what? There is zero hope for Edom. They're, they, they're never asked to, hey, if you guys acknowledge these things and if you repent, God may have mercy on you. No, it's, it's done. Your judgment is sealed. And, and, um, and so that's you know, pretty, pretty scary to think about um, if, if, you're, if you're an Edomite, right? And so here we have uh, the reason or the offense that, um, that God took against these guys. Now let's look at God's outlook for Edom. W- when is all this going to happen? Um, verse 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. There's our expression, the day of the Lord, right? We said there's little day of the Lord, little D, which is any time God acts in judgment. And then there's the big D day of the Lord, which is what? The future, right? The, tribula- the, the rapture, tribulation, uh, uh, you know, battle of Armageddon, uh, the millennial kingdom, that's all the day of the Lord, a big D. This is little D, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you, your dealings will turn on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations you drink continually, they will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed, but on Mount Zion, that's Israel, or Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And so because of their mistreatment against the Jews, the, the Edomites were not just punished, they were completely, what? Exterminated. The Idumeans say, well, how did that happen? Or when did that happen? Well, the, the Idumeans, right? Remember, the Edomites became the Idumeans because they had to move into the region of Idumea just south of Palestine there. They joined the Jews in their rebellion against Rome uh, and were defeated along with the Jews, AD 70. And they, they went out of existence as a nation. That's what it means in verse 10 where it says, you will be cut off forever. Verse 18, it says... Uh, there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. And guess what? Today, there is no race on this planet that can be identified as a descendant of Edom. It's just not there. There's no language. There's nothing. And so Obadiah's prediction that there would be no survivor has been fulfilled. And guess what? You know what else that means? That his prediction regarding Israel will also be fulfilled as well. You say, what's that? Well, look at verse 19. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain. All, that's Gaza, by the way. Um, someday Israel is going to actually have that back, okay? God promised that to them. Uh, also possess the territory of Ephraim, the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of his host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And then I love this, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now we're talking about day of the Lord, big D, Right? This is what's going down at the end. And this is, this is all really talking about Israel's future restoration uh, is foretold. And, and someone said it this way, the corrective chastening of the nation's past did not cancel God's covenant promises. 
Throughout history, God has preserved these special, this special nation and God has bound himself irrevocably to fulfill his covenants. And one of those covenants that he made to Israel or promises that he made to Israel was he would give them a land and he defines the borders of the land in Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21. And at no time in history has Israel ever occupied the entire length and breadth of the land that God has promised to them. It hasn't happened yet. Because guess what? It's going to swallow up all the Arab nations someday. All these Arab nations that are rising up and wanting to come against Israel, right? They're going to get swallowed up someday, and it's all going to be Israel from Iraq to, 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 to uh, all, the, all those nations there on, on, the, uh, you know, on the east, to the east of, um, um, you know, of Israel. And so here Obadiah is looking ahead to the end times, While all the other nations are going to be severely judged, God will preserve his nation Israel by giving them the land that he originally promised to Abraham, which included the land of the Edomites. So he's basically saying, not only are you going to go out of existence, Edom, but Israel's going to get your land because they're the rightful owners anyway. And it it happened just like Obadiah said it would. God's enemies went out of existence while Israel remains as a nation, right? Are there Jews around here? Are there Israel? Is, is Israel a nation? Absolutely, right? Uh, why? Because God is faithful to his word. I love this. Ultimately, the, 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 the bottom line, literally the bottom line of this, of this prophecy is, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Someone said this, that Obadiah's last note of prophecy vibrates on Till at last it shall be taken up into the great chorus of accomplished hope and satisfied expectation. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You remember Handel's Messiah, right? And that's the whole point. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. His program will go forward. No one can thwart his plan or his program or his people. Amen? The the kingdom is the Lord's. Now, let me just real quickly... Give you a so what, okay? How does the message of Obadiah apply personally and practically to your life, okay? Three things, three simple applications. You ready? Number one, God will be faithful to humble you. God will be faithful, right? We're talking about God is faithful to his promises. And what he said would happen to, Ob- to, to Edom happened. And what he said would happen to Israel will happen. We're seeing it unfolding even today, right? So God will be faithful to humble you. And I think the book of Odiah is one of the greatest and clearest examples in all the Bible of the fact that pride goes before a fall. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And so if you're smug, if you're arrogant, if you're cocky, if you're self-sufficient, if you're self-reliant, if you're self-confident, you're wise in your own eyes, this book should put the fear of God in you. That basically God is opposed to you if you're proud, prideful, right? And those who exalt themselves, he will humble. Those who trust in their own wisdom and strength will eventually come crashing down. John Blanchard, who has written a great book on the minor prophets, he said this. He says, in opposing the proud, God can deploy every living being in heaven and on earth, every law of physics and every atom in the cosmos in any way he chooses to frustrate and humiliate the proud. We dare not forget this sobering fact. In other words, God's got every 
resource in the universe at his disposal to humble you. And so what's the lesson? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, right? Don't, don't wait for him to humble you. You humble yourself. So number one, God will be faithful to humble you. Number two, God will be faithful to vindicate you. God will be faithful to vindicate you. And you may have somebody who you could liken or someone or some group you could liken to the Edomites, right? Kind of a family feud. Maybe you've got a family feud. Maybe it's in your own family, right? Um, there's some bitter, bitter rivalry going on. You're being maybe treated unjustly or unfairly, right? And, and your natural tendency is to take matters into your own hands and to get what? Revenge. I know you would never do that, right? But Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. Never take your own, what? Revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The point is, Vengeance is the Lord's. And did Edom get what they deserved? Did did Israel have to do anything? Or did God do everything? Yeah. So listen, there may be somebody in your life that, you know, you're feeling really tempted to get some revenge. You want to get a few licks of your own in there, right? And they deserve it. Well, guess what? Leave it alone. God will do a much better job than you will. Vengeance is mine, say it the Lord. Uh, Your job is to feed them right? To love them, to heat burning coals on their head, not let their evil to overcome you, but overcome their evil with good. Jesus is the perfect example of this. First Peter chapter 2. It says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Amen? You trust yourself to the Lord. God will deal with those, with those people who are treating you unjustly or unfairly. So number one, God will be faithful to humble you. Number two, God will be faithful to vindicate you. And for some of you tonight, you, maybe you need to hear this, God will be faithful to save you. God will be faithful to save you. You say, what are you talking about? Let me just read uh, in closing what I think is a brilliant um, application to the person and work of Jesus Christ Uh, in regards to the book of Obadiah. Listen carefully. In Jesus Christ, the prophecy of Obadiah comes to pinpoint focus. In Obadiah, God's people are being oppressed by their own relatives. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Instead, his own relatives mocked him, regarded him with contempt, mistreated him, and handed him over to be executed, exactly what the Edomites did to the people of Judah. Jesus did not take matters into his own hands when he was mistreated, but rather waited patiently for God to avenge the injustice. As he promised in the prophecy of Obadiah, God avenged himself on those who dared to do such a thing to this representative of his people. Even more, in one act of vengeance, God unleashed his full judgment on everyone who had or ever would set themselves against him. But the one who would bear the judgment was the only one who didn't deserve to. 
Jesus bore the vengeance of God against Edom's sin and against our sin. By satisfying God's vengeance, Jesus provides the way of deliverance for prideful, arrogant, and inhumane people like you and like me. God shows that his vengeance has been satisfied by raising Jesus from the dead. When we put our faith in Jesus, his experience of divine vengeance becomes ours too, and we die with him on the cross. Then together with him, we're raised to new life, no longer as enemies of God, but as belonging to his own people for for whom God will one day right all injustice. And then he says this, everyone will experience God's vengeance. There are only two ways this can happen. Either we can accept Christ's experience of God's vengeance on our behalf, or if we refuse that, we'll have to experience God's vengeance directly. So really, you have to make a choice, right? Are you going to receive, are you going to experience God's vengeance, right, as an unbeliever? Or will you stand behind the Lord who took God's vengeance on the cross? It's your choice, right? You can either have joy in Jesus or you can have the judgment of God. But Christ provides the answer to God's vengeance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and even this obscure little book, Obadiah, that we some of us had a hard time finding it at the very beginning, um, is really, really practical for our lives even today. And so, Lord, I pray that these thoughts tonight about how you are faithful to humble those who raise themselves up in pride and how you're also faithful to vindicate those of us who trust you, um, that vengeance is, is yours, not ours, to exact. Lord, help us to trust you to, to accomplish that in your way and your time and not take matters into our own hands. And Lord, for those who may be here tonight, who, if they were to die to today, tonight, Lord, they would experience your vengeance um, directly, Lord, that they would realize that Christ absorbed that vengeance on the cross on their behalf, and they would repent of their sin, and they would trust Jesus alone for their salvation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.